Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Yeah, we talk hoops on Robert Ory's new podcast, The Big Shot Bob Pod. I would have loved to play with LeBron because if you get down, get open, get to where you're supposed to be, he's going to find you. Feel like he got robbed for MVP. But with Robert Ory, we cover the floor and we talk about everything. And so your youngest is a teenager. So he's not going to high school right now. He's doing everything via Zoom and he's, Dad, can you help me? Nope, I'm running away. (laughs) From the team that brought you the big podcast with Shaq, it's The Big Shot Bob Pod. Subscribe now and get new episodes every week on the Podcast One app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, LiveByLive.com, and everywhere you get your favorite podcasts. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Jared Dubin, talented basketball writer, freelancer, also does some great work for 538. And I wanted to talk about primarily the Eastern Conference, our takeaways from the season so far, but we ended up mostly in that converse- conversation, bottom of the East, a little bit of the top of the East, and takeaways, what we're looking forward to moving forward. Really good conversation. Hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Always a good time. As always, it feels like in this kind of early stretch of the year, there's a lot of ground to cover. But the thing that I wanted to start with with you is something that has been both surprising to me and I would say exciting, which is that the bottom of the East, which I had really been dreading going into this year, especially when you consider how last year was, that those teams have by and large been significantly more competitive to start this year, whether we're talking about the Knicks or the Cavs or the Hornets. There are some exceptions, obviously, but generally speaking, they've done a lot better. Yeah, I think, you know, there are exceptions, like you said, Um, you know, the Wizards have largely been uncompetitive when they've actually been allowed to play games. The Pistons, I think, are actually underperforming their point differential by like three or four wins or something like that right now, which is interesting. Yeah, the glass has it at 2.6, but they're still bad. They're just not this bad. They're still bad. It's just for someone to be underperforming by that many wins already this early in the season is eye-opening. But, you know, like you said, teams like, like the Knicks, the Cavs, the Hornets, they've all been more competitive than we thought. And I think it's interesting that the reason they've all been more competitive than we thought for all three of them is their defense. Like the Cavs, I'm not sure if they're still in the top five in points allowed per possession. I know they were for a while. 
pretty sure they dropped out. They had like yeah, the they're fi- they're defense. fifth now. Yeah, they had like the number one defense for a little bit. Sure. Um, the the Knicks are like bordering on the top five. The Hornets are you know like right around league average. Um, I think it's interesting that for all three of those teams, which I think were expected to be, you know, at least among the bottom five teams in the East, and they're all or actually the Hornets are in the bottom five right now, but the the Knicks and Cavs are outside that group. But for all three of them, it's the defense that's over or I don't know if I want to say overperforming, but carrying them to where they've been, I guess. Yeah, I think carrying them to where they've been is, is, a, is a better way of putting it. And there absolutely appears to be some regression to the mean that is necessary in terms of opponent three-point shooting. It just so happens. Oh, yeah. It, it uh, just so, so happens. I mean, I, I wrote this thing today about Julius Randle and I had an aside that got cut um, about the Knicks defense. Their opponents are underperforming underperforming their expected effective field goal percentage on above-the-break threes by, I think it was 7.12%. That is the highest mark of the second spectrum era by three full points. Wow. The the next closest team is at like 4.2 or something like that. Yeah, and a a part of why that is relevant for the Knicks and for the 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 Hawks. They're the two teams that are top one and two, actually. So the Knicks are giving up the fourth highest proportion of opponent shots from three, and they're also giving up the lowest proportion of makes. So it's not only the idea that teams will be shooting better, it's that it's a large proportion of what they're doing. And so generally speaking, and Every year, our our mutual friend Seth Partnow talks about this a lot. Of like has has to have this sit down chat with fan bases whose teams are are part of why they're exceeding expectations or in certain cases underperforming expectations is because opponents opponent three point shooting. Because generally speaking, the understanding is you teams can't do a lot to affect the percentage that opponents shoot from three, though they can obviously change the shots. Like have the volume, they have a big factor in, but the success rate is less controllable. Yeah, and it's it's something he talks about literally every year, and literally every year, whatever team he's talking about, the fan base is like, no, they're just leaving the right guys open, um, and that literally never happens. Nobody leaves the right guys open. That's not how it works. It's it's not like other teams just decide actually, you know, we're gonna let the we're gonna let the good shooters shoot. We're gonna let Duncan Robinson shoot, and then you know the the Knicks or the Hawks or the Cavs or whoever are saying no, we're not gonna let him shoot. We're gonna make Myers Leonard shoot. That's that's not really how it works. Um, the, that's why the key is essentially to to drive down the rate at which teams attempt threes. You know, nobody's really shown a sustainable ability to get teams to underperform. And even the teams that have, where it's like the Celtics, where it's like five or six years in a row, even if you assume that, you know, it's, it's completely random, there is still within a random distribution the possibility of a team overperforming on that five or six years in a row it's at the obviously the the extreme tail end of it but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist it only seems like it's not crazy because it's actually happened if that makes sense and there there obviously is variance within a year like for example raptors opponents last year at the end of the year they shot 34.3 percent that is really low like that is on the low side that is also better that would be the fourth like the fourth weakest rate so far this year so like you, you these are even outside of like that realm and then you like to bring up toronto again last year 34.3 percent of opponent threes went in right now they're right around league average at 37.7 so and, and we've seen the challenges of that with their defense that 
you know, uh, having because the Raptors can give up a lot of threes, that having those go in at a more normal rate, it makes their defense look less robust than we thought before. The, while there are some areas that the Raptors could improve, they're now 15th in defense as opposed to the loftier heights that they had last year. Right. And the, and the thing with that kind of strategy is, you know, the way the Bucks do it, and they're the ones that sort of, I guess, at the forefront of the movement. And I actually wrote about this earlier in the season, too, where, you know, more and more teams are deciding, you know, we're going to shut off the paint and just let teams shoot threes. But the key is you also have to shut off the paint. You right. can't just let teams shoot threes and let them get to the paint. The whole key with the Bucks is that they systematically shut down the paint. Nobody gets attempts there and nobody shoots well there. It's one thing like – so for example, the Knicks, their opponents are not shooting well inside the paint, which makes sense. You know, They have Mitchell Robinson and Nerlens Noel. They're both very good rim protectors in the immediate area around the basket. And you know, if guys try to challenge them, they're, they're maybe going to not have quite as much success as they would against – you know, um, pick a bad rim protector in the league, insert player here, they're going to finish better against that guy than they are probably against Mitchell Robinson and Erlens Noel. But with the Knicks also, and I'm just doing this because it was something that I was looking up as, as part of the thing, um, they're also allowing a ton of attempts around the rim. And if you're giving up a ton of threes and a ton of, t- ton of attempts around the rim, even if you are able to control to a certain extent the rate at which teams finish – around the rim the fact that you're giving up more of those shots and they're converted at a higher rate than shots from like 10 feet away or whatever is going to naturally make your defense a little bit worse because more shots are going in at a higher rate than they would be if they were going in or if they were being attempted a little bit further out and then when you give up a ton of threes also what that does is drive up the variance which is why every time you would see um the bucks lose the last couple seasons it would be because their opponent went you know like 16 for 35 from three or something like that because every once in a while you're going to shut down the paint and they're going to take a bunch of threes and they're going to make them you know like if you don't have control over it sometimes they're going to miss them sometimes they're going to make them and it looks like your defense is not doing what it's supposed to when the threes go in but that's just something that you know you're you've decided that you're going to live with but the key to that strategy is shutting down the paint also and not just from a percentage standpoint but from actually allowing teams to shoot from inside the paint at all right and one way that i like to summarize this i might do this in a piece at some point uh, cleaning the glass has a really nice tool of location effective field goal percentage and so basically the idea is if opponents shot what most players do from those ranges what kind of a like how well would they do and so basically the idea is like what kind of shots are you giving up and currently there are two teams that are giving up really what you would call healthy shot profiles that teams aren't making those shots so far and that's the Knicks. the Knicks are 29th in location effective field goal percentage and first in actual effective field goal percentage and the hawks the hawks are 21st and third and so that basically the the indicator there is either you're doing something really right and there and as you said there can be a mix of the two like it could be we're actually doing a good job protecting shots at the rim like that is something that teams can can contest better that is because you can have guys there you can nod and transition defense some of these other variables that can potentially be in, in favor then what i think is also really fascinating and this connects with another west another like kind of fringy two fringy eastern conference teams is that there are two Eastern Conference teams that are in the 10 healthiest 
or like I guess you would say unhealthiest from the opponent perspective, shot distributions where opponents are making those shots. And number one there is the Washington Wizards. The Wizards are giving up the quote-unquote best opponent shot distribution in the entire NBA, mostly because opponents are taking 41% of their shots from mid-range, which is incredible. But they're making everything, and that is and and that also doesn't isn't too much of a surprise because the Wizards don't have defensive talent other than Robin Lopez, who's now thrust into a starting role with Thomas Bryant being it. Yeah, I mean, when I wrote uh, on the um, on the Bucks defense thing earlier in the year, there was um, the whole like I said, the whole key is like limiting the the shots in the immediate area around the rim. And over the last two years, the Bucks had set you know a new record in terms of you know, the lowest percentage of opponent attempts that came within three feet of the basket. And this year, there's five teams that are below where the Bucks were last year, led by the Wizards, who are so far below. I mean, Wizards opponents are only taking 15.5% of their shots within three feet of the rim. Incredible. The Bucks, the Bucks set the record last year at, I think it was 21% or something like or 22%. It, w- it was just barely over 20, uh, 22.1%. And this year, the Wizards are at 155 just to, to show you how crazy it is. Yeah, and then the other team that is that is interesting from that perspective is Orlando. And Orlando, generally pretty pretty good opponent shot distribution and, and things have been going in. Now, they're, they're facing a different a different challenge than years before. I mean, Jonathan Isaac's already out for the year. Marco Fultz has been, has been capable. So, and, and, but some of that, that is, is a really good sign. You would say for Orlando that you would expect it to, you use regress to the mean either way, whether it's something that is too positive or too negative. And then the other one kind of in that, that I've been interested in, this team is better than the bottom of the, like what we thought was the bottom of the East, but is an, is an interesting kind of counter is I've become fascinated with the Pacers. So the Pacers are giving up 40% opponent shooting from three so far, and it hasn't completely nuked their defense, which is, you know, so they're overall, their their 13th. So if you think about the idea, like one of the concepts that you and I focus a lot on early in the year is basically like when things regress to the mean, what is it going to look like then? And like, I think that depending on how available Miles Turner is and some of these other things, the Pacers defense could be looking amazing at that point. Yeah, Miles Turner, by the way, is... Uh... One of the early front runners for for defensive player of the year. He's absolutely. just been unbelievable. I mean, the guy is absolutely everywhere. He's blocking like seventeen shots a night. It's it all started the first night. He blocked eight. I think he blocked seven or eight shots uh, in their season opener against the Knicks. He's had a couple more games with four or five blocks. Um, he's just been incredible, and I think he's more involved offensively this season than at least he was last year too you know touching touching the ball more often taking more like being more willing to shoot his usage rate is just about the same um so maybe i'm just lying to myself but it it does seem like he's been more involved maybe it's more that like you know dribble handoffs and moving the ball around the arc and things like that as opposed to actually you know involving himself but I mean the the blocks and the defense he's playing, and it's not just at the rim; it's everywhere. He's all over the place right now. Um, Here, here's here's my favorite kind of way of way of getting at that. Miles Turner led the NBA in block percentage, so Basketball Reference does it as the percentage of two point shots 
that occur when you're on the floor that you block. He mm-hmm. he led the league at 8.4% in 18-19. And remember, that was when we're all like, oh, man, Turner's the, the beast on the block. It's coming that direction. And then last year was a real disappointment. 8.4% led the league. It will regress, but right now he's at 11.3. <laughs> like, that is mind-blowing. Like, that is a truly, a truly incredible... And, and I've done some some digging on this, um, it's just because it's been so fascinating to me. The I mean, the concept of Turner Sabonis was always was was weird to me from the from the outset. I mean, Kevin Pritchard really wanted it. It's you know mostly worked, and so the Pacers so far this year they've been you know fine when Turner and Sabonis are on the floor. But what I've enjoyed is that they've been varying degrees of successful in the Turner only and Sabonis only minutes. But they're basically two completely different teams. Like mm-hmm. with Turner on the floor, they're this defensive monster. Even though the rest of the Pacers are not this unbelievable defensive squad, like they're 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 not bad. Like they don't have too many negative defenders, but they also don't have a lot of huge positives. And then when Sabonis is on the floor, they can't stop anybody, but they also can't really be stopped. Yeah, I think the the, the key, uh, um, or a, at least one of the keys for them defensively is. There's nobody on their team that's going to get like physically overpowered. Yes. Except maybe Jeremy Lamb, who just started playing a couple days ago, and he's only really going to get overpowered by like super big wings. Like if you put him on LeBron, he'll get physically overpowered. But like you put him on a regular old wing, that's not really going to happen to him. Um, you know, and Brogdon is so strong. Sabonis is so strong. Turner, even a guy like Doug McDermott, like is he the greatest defender in the world? No, but you're not just going to have somebody like bulldoze him. You know, um, nobody's getting not too far off their spots and they're all long, too. Um, and when you're long and strong, if you can just be in the right spots for the most part, you can build a pretty good defense that way. And especially when you have somebody behind you like Turner, who's just cleaning up absolutely everything. And uh, I just looked it up, by the way. Eleven point three percent would be the all time record for block rate. <laughs> That's uh, not a surprise. I mean, that is a completely insane and frequency. So just so we to bring it sort of full circle. There's uh, eight seasons ever with someone 10% or higher. Um, one of them is Turner. Five of them are Minute Bowl. Uh, one of them is Nerlens Noel this season at 10%. And one of them is Mitchell Robinson a couple seasons ago at 10%. So there's there's why the Knicks are protecting the rim so well. Right. And so and, and that's an important distinction to make in terms of like New York, like, yeah, there have been people like Seth and like me who've talked about, you know, like this is, this is going to regress. Like that's just the way, the way it's going to happen, but it doesn't have to be everywhere. And it doesn't mean they're trash and they're getting lucky though. They're, I mean, they have gotten really lucky so far. Yeah. And but it's also, you know what? The, the wins are banked. You don't exactly. give those wins back. If, if, you know, if the Knicks go, I don't know how many games they have left 40 something. Like if they go, you know, 20 and 42 like it doesn't mean that you know you take three wins away because they really should have won five games so far like right and and it's not like when a guy shoots 20 percent if a guy's a 38 percent shooter that means and he's shooting 20 percent the starting there that he's automatically going to go to like 50 for a month like no it doesn't have to be that way it doesn't even have to be that a 38 percent shooter shoots 38 percent every year you know like there's variance within that so what i was talking about with toronto's opponent three-point shooting before like that it, it is an important and the banked wins are are so pivotal for that because it changes the way everybody thinks about the process, and it'll be interesting, like from Washington's perspective, the other way of the banked losses. Like how? Yeah, I was that- going to say the same for Detroit. Like yes. Detroit again is underperforming its point differential, 
they're probably pretty happy with that. You know, like if they, if, if they start playing two expectations for the rest of the year, having three, four extra losses will help them lottery wise. And it's pretty clear that's sort of the direction that they're heading. Yeah, it, it does appear that way. And, and there's the weird confluence that you could argue, and I would, that Killian Hayes getting hurt actually makes it tougher for them on that approach because playing a teenage point guard generally makes your team worse. And so now they're playing more capable guys, but they're they're still doing a, a solid enough job losing games for the most part though they did have that they like the they had a, another blowout win against a good team which they've they've done a few times this year i so i getting back to that kind of like the bottom part i think that it it's also a reminder of a couple of different elements that you and i think about and talk about a lot in our work but you don't always necessarily see in this in this respect so like with cleveland one of the big stories is internal improvement last year Darius Garland was one of the most negative players in the entire NBA. He has been much better than that so far this year now. Hopefully he will continue to improve and be even better than that. But like that, giving minutes to somebody who's a huge negative, like that's going to sink your team like a stone. And Sexton has been dramatically better, of course, as well. And then the other, so that's one strain is like just guys getting better. And then along the same lines, but a different way of doing it is just excising or replacing however you want to see it non-nba players with capable players and so you could think about the way that the the hornets look so much better this year with the talent infusion that they've that they've received most notably gordon hayward yeah i think that it's interesting too for cleveland that i think it's very important for them in terms of the success that they've been having that the internal improvement has come at the guard spots yes because it's just we've talked about this a bunch of times it's basically impossible to have a good offense in the NBA right now if you don't have above average point guard play. Um, you know, there are maybe some teams that could do it, like the Lakers can do it because they have LeBron. You know, um, you know the the Nets when Kyrie wasn't playing could do it because they had Kevin Durant. You know, um, the I'm sure the Nuggets could do it if they didn't have Jamal Murray because they still have Nikola Jokic. And like so, this sort of ties into the thing that I wrote today about Julius Randle too. So I'll rope that rope that in a second, but. You know, specifically Garland and Sexton improving has helped the Cavs, I think, just in terms of being able to be a competent NBA team. And sort of what I wrote about uh, Julius Randle today is basically he has this year improved his assist rate year over year more than any big man in the history of the NBA, essentially. it's His assist rate jumped 12.8 percentage points this year, which when you're looking at like veteran big men, which basically I set the cutoff as players who had you know qualified for the minutes per game leaderboard four times coming in. So like mid career and on big men, nobody's ever had a higher season to season jump in assist rate than Julius Randle. Over the last three years, he assisted on 15.8% of his teammates baskets while he was on the floor three years in a row before this year, 15.8, 15.8, 15.8. This year he's at 28.6. Incredible. The, the Knicks essentially made him like their co-point guard and he's running the offense. And they had to do that because they just don't really have point guard talent. I mean, you saw it last year, the offense with Alfred Payton and Dennis Smith and Frank Nielakina running it was 28th in the league. They couldn't score. They couldn't do anything. So they just decided we're going to shift some of the playmaking burden responsibility over to this guy on our team who's more talented than them. And it's helped a little bit, but they're still like 20 25th in, in points per possession this year. So even though Randall has gotten a lot better and specifically gotten better at something they needed, the fact that they're still getting such bad point guard play for the most part is still dragging the offense down. And that's, I think, you know, where their Emmanuel quickly draft pick comes in because he's actually playing well. Um, he's had a lot of, or, or I would say he's had some very good games and he's had 
uh, a slightly smaller number of very bad games. Um, so on the whole, he's been fine if you just look at his season numbers. But the potential is there, I think, specifically with his shooting because, you know, the Knicks have Randall, Payton, R.J. Barrett, Mitch Robinson all in the starting lineup together. None of them can shoot, uh, or at least none of them get treated like shooters. I think Randall and Barrett have shown at least some ability to make wide open shots that are given to them by defenses but when you have that many guys in the lineup that don't get treated like shooters it just strangles your offense so much so they like even if it means shifting some of the playmaking burden back off of randall even though he's doing well with it like i think it does make some sense for them to change their lineup and i think that that's sort of a difference i think that you see i mean cleveland's offense isn't any good either but that's you know a lot of it's coming from the fact that other than sexton nobody on the team can really make a shot Right, and they've they've also Cleveland's offense has run through this real problem where the it's kind of a perfect storm where they had all of their all of their players who can handle the ball unavailable at the same time mm-hmm. and that's going to affect their you know it was a big enough part of the sample that it's going to affect their numbers for a long time and not to, and they weren't like incredible before so it's not like it's taking them from good to bad it's taking them from not great to a lot worse and one way of describing Randall's impact is Again, using the cleaning cleaning glass garbage time filter, the Knicks have a 107.7 offensive rating when he's on the floor. That's not great, but it's also like not horrendous, and that's been good enough that when you have a capable defense, that you're you're a 500 like you're a 500 team. Like even even point they have an even point differential when Julius Randle's on the floor. Slight positive. That 107.7 offensive rating drops to a 98.7 when Randall is off the floor. Now, it is important to note that one of the players who was supposed to be helping that, Alec Burks, was out a bunch of time. And so that meant that Thibodeau didn't have as many options there. But raising raising a team to res- to like fringe respectability is actually incredibly valuable. Oh, yeah. I mean, I had been looking at it in preparation. I didn't wind up including it in the story, but... I had been looking at it on, on NBA.com, so it's not the garbage time filter. But so their offense essentially went from like 21st or 22nd in the league with Randall on the court to fifth worst in the last 25 years with Randall off the court. Yeah. <sighs> so I, I think what's one of the parts of the East that has been so fascinating to me is that while a lot of these teams are doing better and some of the teams towards the top are doing worse. I mean, Miami, in terms of record, Miami's currently 6-11. and 11. The Raptors are 7-11. and 11. The Celtics have had some challenges. There looks like they're doing a little bit better now. But you also have like this dynamic where it's like all these teams are doing better, but I still don't think like my top eight, top eight in the East has fundamentally changed. Like, I mean, the order within that eight has absolutely changed, but you know, nobody's broken quite in there yet, at least to me. Maybe that's my prior holding too strongly, but I don't think so. Maybe. I mean, some of it is like, yeah, the Heat are six and 11, but Jimmy Butler has played a game and a half. Tyler Hero has been out for the last five or six games. Bam Adebayo was out for a few games. Uh, you know, Dragic has missed a few games. Uh, they were missing like half their rotation for three or four games. Like, I think we've seen the Heat play maybe one real game this season. I'm not sure how much their six and eleven record tells us about how good they are as a team. Now, granted, like we were talking about already, those six wins and eleven losses are banked. You know, you don't get to replay the 17 games when everybody gets back healthy. So it still is an uphill climb for them to get back to where we think that they quote-unquote should be. You know, it's similar with the Raptors. They started off so poorly, they blew a double-digit lead in like four of their first five games. 
So, you know, now they're four games under 500, even though they're, they just nudged themselves back to, to having a positive point differential. You know, like the, the Cavs are nine and nine despite being outscored on the season. The Knicks are eight and 11 are actually, you know what? They're right on their, their point differential, the Knicks. So slightly below average team. Love it. This is kind of what that, we've been that's, wanting for, that's for years. hugely successful for them. Oh, yeah. That's such a monstrous step forward from where they've been for so long. Like and where where I'm kind of the, the the duality that I'm finding so fun with the East right now is that this bottom strengthening is happening in exactly the same year that <laughs> the play in is happening. And so I, I Oh, I thought you were gonna say the same year that there's a really good draft class coming up. Oh yeah, that too. Um, um but so which, so like yeah actually, so many the, of the the best young players keep going to the west <laughs> and it's like how many times is that going to happen if these east teams all of a sudden this year you know decide they're going to be a little bit better than they have been in the past few years that means you're going to have some west teams at the very bottom and it's like you well, know are we going to see these guys go to minnesota new orleans and sacramento again like you know yeah and that that's actually a really good connection because I can't remember who did the research on this, but it was there was this idea which holds a lot of credence for me that the West being as strong as it has been, especially in that like early two thousands stretch where you know like there was that like where the Suns and the Warriors uh, the Suns and the Warriors at separate times the year after we believe and the Suns a little bit later than that each had I believe was forty eight wins and missed the playoffs mm-hmm. and that the clarification that happens there is. You so like the, there are teams that are similar level to the East that know they're not going to make the playoffs, and that there is value in that in the long run. Obviously, it, it's terrible in the short run because you want to make the playoffs and you're and you're not going to. But in the long run, then those teams kind of know when to when to pack it in, and that can lead to benefits even with lottery reform that they can get there. And so, with the East, we might see it kind of swinging at exactly the, the wrong time where you have let's call it 13 teams and who i mean obviously somebody's going to get hurt between now and then and that they'll drop out but 13 teams that have a reasonable belief and i like to use the all sorry the the all-star game slash the trade deadline as the inflection point here that at that juncture they don't see that let's let's put it this way they don't see themselves as sellers because in some ways that's more important than whether they buy or not and that has a ton of ripple effects throughout the league. Now, those teams, obviously, that means that they're going to be pushing for longer. Some of them will make it. Some of them will not. That has for, for everything else. And also, it affects the rest of the market because if those teams, if instead of it being eight teams in the NBA that are pretty sure they're not going to make the playoffs, and so thus if they have veterans on expiring contracts or guys they can help that have a little bit longer, being like, sure, if we can get a good return, we'll give them out. If that eight is like four, it's going to be a lot harder for the best teams to get better unless the shift happens by the buyout market, in which case it actually hurts those teams more because then they get nothing for them. Right. I mean, at at least they get, I suppose, the extra losses at the end of the season. Sure, but between the trade deadline and I don't know how long the line is between the trade de- this year between the trade deadline and buyout. I obviously will learn that at some point. I don't think we even know definitively. I know it's been heavily rumored, but I don't think they confirmed that the trade deadline is March 25th. Even yeah, I'm not sure. I I, th- I think it's 
I think it is going to be them, but yeah, it, and the calendar being so weird, the uh, system days and all this, I was going through that recently for uh, for something in terms of when guys can be traded and aggregated. It's, it's so weird, and that will create real problems, but yeah, so like, the, the, generally speaking— and there's a good reason for this. Teams are optimistic. The idea, like, okay, if if we're if we're successful, we'll stay successful. If we're unsuccessful, there's something that's been holding us back, and we'll get there. So, you have the Cavs that are nine and nine, and they're like, look at that, we're good now. The next we we talked about, we've talked about them at length. But I would assume that the Bulls are seven and ten. But when they've had their veteran, like this bench, that's actually been doing really well for them. When they've had their veterans, they've been they've been doing they've been competitive too. And the Wizards have been just so ransacked by COVID that maybe their argument is, and they have they have a bona fide star in Bradley Beal. Maybe it's like, well, all we have to do is get to tenth. Like we can do we can do that. And so that optimism could end up being a very good thing for those of us who like to see competitive basketball deeper into the season, but also a bad thing for the teams that eventually lose. And also remember, this is the craziest part to me about the play in is. I understand the motivation behind getting the extra revenue of a home, like a playoff series and a best of seven playoff series because you're getting at least two home games, often at least three. However, the revenue difference between being the ninth seed and being the 11th seed, unless you win the play in, is very minimal. I think one interesting thing with the Wizards specifically is that. Even despite all this, and I think we saw, um, you know, the the things with Beal with his head in his hands last night is in addition to the Wizards saying they want to keep him, he's now said a couple times he wants to stay and work it out there, which usually when you're in the midst, like you hear guys say that at the beginning, of course, but when you're in the midst of what's been going on and specifically with them over the last five or six games, he has, I think he has 246 points in the last six games and they're one in five in those games. And he's out there saying like, you know, somebody asked him, are you frustrated? And he was like, is the sky blue? But then he was like, I really want to work it out here. I don't want to go anywhere. It's just, it's an interesting sort of back and forth. And like, it doesn't allow if the Wizards do decide that they're going to move on from him. It's not as clean of, oh, well, he wanted to leave in terms of the public framing, which is always something that I think factors in well, and when, when teams decide you know if they want to do it. That's the craziest thing about the Harden situation is that Harden did the Rockets a favor by being so brazen because he, he forced their hand but also didn't kill their leverage as things turned out. And so it it also, like, I mean, it gave Rafael Stone and their front office a pretty clear indication of where these things were going and whether, and I mean, the Rockets didn't, even if they didn't know all that, even if James Harden didn't know all that early in the offseason when D'Antoni didn't come back and, and the Maury stuff and everything else, the Rockets behaved functionally the entire 2020 offseason like this was going to happen even if they didn't know. And so the uniformity of that is really useful. But remember how different that is for the Wizards. The Wizards just gave 
Davis Bertans, a huge contract. They made this commitment getting Russell Westbrook. And Russell Westbrook, he is a he is incidentally. Oh my this god, it's r- making me so sad. Like this version of Russell Westbrook, incidentally, is actually a great asset for a tanking basketball team, but that isn't the intention. Like that that's it's sort of a parallel to what I said about the what I've thought about the Pistons, which is they were trying to be good and failed, and that is more damaging than like trying to be bad and being bad, especially if you're if you're effective. But with Beal, that the the point you brought up about the high volume scoring in losses, I mean there was that that crazy stat that it's the longest streak in the history of the league where a player scores 40 and his team loses is that there are a lot of different ways to score 40 points and Beal has been remarkably efficient like it is not a circumstance like there there are ways that this could happen incidentally one of those involving one of his current teammates where a player is getting that kind of volume at the detriment to his team Beal is doing all of this partially because they have absences due to COVID, but that hasn't been true the whole time, but also because he's great. And so I I feel for him that it's, you know, he's doing his best, he's doing well, and it's not enough. Yeah, and I think, look, another thing that plays into it, you know, from a trade standpoint, and I don't know, obviously, if it's going to happen or not, but Harden doing what he did and the Rockets still getting that return for him um, helps the Wizards. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Like other than it taking a team off the board, but that was going to happen either way. Right. Someone was going to get James Harden at some point if he really wanted to be gone, and and that happened. And it's not like there will be any shortage of suitors for Bradley Beal if he becomes available. I mean, what he's twenty seven, something like that. Yeah, he's twenty seven. Turns twenty eight basically at the end of the season. Yeah, and I mean he's still under team control for what. Three more years, right? Or I guess two, technically, because he has a player player option. option. Yeah, but I mean, the surplus value you get on these two years is pretty incredible. Um, Right, and and that's the single funniest part of this whole wizard saga is the possibility that them holding bradley beal for for these couple years like i mean they could have traded i think they could have gotten an absolute haul for him in probably in 18 and definitely in in 19 when you know when the paul george trade happened and they probably could have gotten a haul for him in 20 that it's still possible that they get it. And you could make an argument that it would have been better, you know, for the franchise in kind of the macro sense for them to bottom out earlier. And so, you know, they're, they're, uh, the, but they got Beal for these years. And, and also, there's no guarantee that they are going to get that kind of return. There just aren't that many teams left that really need to empty, that really need to empty the war chest. Like, that's just not really the way it's working right now. So, yeah. I am I am very interested in that. And to shift gears a little bit, I mean something that we can go west, we can go east here that I've been really interested in is, you know, you, you we use the early part of the season, especially in a weird year like this, to kind of to one of the tests that I do is is anything really changing my preconceptions at the top and I don't know if it's me leaning too heavily on my priors, which is entirely possible. It happens to at least some teams every single year. But like the like the who are title contenders, who are not, all that type of stuff. Like, yes, there are teams like the Jazz that are dramatically exceeding my expectations right now. But I don't know that I've really changed too much at the top. Have you? Um, I don't know that I've changed too much. Um, I was very high on the Jazz coming into the season. I don't know that I expected them to have you know, the best record in the league like like they do 
right now, but I I thought that them and Denver were like pretty close to the Lakers and Clippers. Um, and I think that that's sort of held true so far. And it's, you know, sort of backed up by their point differential as well. And even Denver is sort of vaulting it itself up there among that group, despite the defense starting so poorly early in the season. And despite, you know, Michael Porter Jr. missing whatever it was, like three weeks for multiple COVID, uh, I guess, violations. I don't know what he did, but yeah. And I, I think that there there are some teams who my opinion has changed of, but not necessarily changed the shape of the title picture, if that makes sense. It like, does. I think that the Pacers are better than I thought they were coming into the season. Um, I think Sabonis is, is better than he was last year. Turner is better than he was last year. Brogdon is better than he was last year. And they've been playing without tj warren for basically the whole season and you know without oladipo and without karis levert you know since they made that trade and they're still a good team they're the way that they're running their offense is creating much healthier shots for them their defense is pretty good despite like you said giving up like 40 percent from three you know i think that they are closer to you know the the Bucks, Sixers, Nets tier than I thought they were coming into the season, if that makes sense. And I think that I feel more solidly about, you know, the Jazz and the Nuggets being pretty clearly, you know, if not one of the two best teams, then definitely the third and fourth best teams in the West. And I think that there's a little bit of a separation after that. I'm pretty similar, but I'll draw a little bit of a line. So for me, I, I've kind of had to by virtue of how the last few years have gone separated out regular season success and postseason success and so Mm -hmm. for me the jazz and the nuggets like i had i didn't really have much doubt of them as regular season teams just like with milwaukee like i i was more bullish on on the bucks being a viable regular season team than i think most and the way they've done it has been intriguing and surprising we don't have time to get into that now i'm sure you and i will in in our own forms over time but what i think has happened is I felt that there was a a bigger gap between pretty much the Lakers and the and the Clippers, and then we don't. I, I mean, the Nets didn't exist in this form at that point, but you know, kind of kind of piecing it together, and kind of everybody else as playoff teams. And what's happened so far is it's made me at least more interested in some of those teams kind of moving forward. I mean, Clippers playoff failures are a part of that, you know, like that they that they underperformed their talent last year and the Lakers, you know, overperformed it to an extent and obviously deserve the championship they got. And so like, I think I'm tentatively leaning towards that margin being narrower than before, but some of that was, was moving in that direction already. When you consider that, like what happened with Miami last year, like the Miami wasn't in that tier, but played like an amazing team. So maybe what I'm, the way I'm articulating this is I'm respecting that second tier's fastball a little bit better right now. And Mm -hmm. I'm not saying any one of them is going to get there or is there right now because I don't think they are. But that, to me, is the more relevant test long-term. And I think it's interesting that I'm shifting a little bit, but I'm not there yet. I think one thing that's interesting, you know, with with the Lakers in particular is I think that their their offense is, you know, slightly better this year. I think in the half court it's been a, a decent amount better than it was, which was something that, you know, was an issue for most of last year and then not an issue really at all uh in the playoffs. Um 
And I think that getting specifically getting Schroeder and Harrell helps there just because when LeBron and AD are off the court, you have something that you can go to to create offense, which was not really the case for most of last season. Um, and now I think they, they do have something there. And I think their defense may have taken like a slight step back, but they're still the best defensive team in the league right now. So it's like they, they traded up on one end of the court in exchange for trading down slightly on the other end. And the trade down on the other end hasn't mattered because they're still the best in the league on that side of the ball. So it's like, has the gap narrowed as much as maybe we think it has? Um, I'm not really sure. I do think that the Jazz's offense going up another level makes it more like if the Jazz had just gotten, you know, even better on defense and were suddenly the best team and best defense in the league instead of the Lakers, I wouldn't be as interested in that as I am in then just moving the ball like crazy and getting a wide open three on like every possession and knocking them down. Well, yeah, and it it was that weird early in the season, there was this dynamic with the Jazz that they were doing pretty well on offense, despite some of their best players really struggling. Like Bogdanovich couldn't hit a shot early in the season. Donovan Mitchell was really struggling. And then what happened was the support players are still doing pretty well, but then their best players are getting back more to what we expected. And so it's like, oh, crap, this is actually like a much more dangerous team. And it was so the question was kind of like, what parts were real and what parts were going to were going to get back to normal? And for the Jazz, it, at least as of right now, it's a very positive circumstance. And yeah, I mean, the way that I've long described a bona fide championship contender is elite on one end and at least very good on the other. And the reason I was always so skeptical of the Jazz was not the potential of their elite defense, though I'm skeptical of it against the best competition. It's been that I didn't think their offense was at that level. And I'm not all the way there yet, but I'm closer to there than I was two months ago yeah i don't know that i'm already there either but i mean if they're going to come in you know in or around the top five offenses they're a much different team i think than they've been the last couple of years even when they've been you know a good team you know like i think it's better for them if they're going to be like the the fifth best offense and the fifth best defense than if they're the best defense and like the 14th best offense or something like that absolutely Just what i like to end these on early in the season is just what are you going to be watching over the next couple weeks? Are there any storylines, any teams, players that you're really interested in figuring out? I am extremely interested in the Rockets. I really just want to see what happens. They haven't played with all of their guys yet at really any point this season. They started off the season with COVID issues. Then they came back and it was like Harden was, you know, staging a, a protest to get himself traded and then since the trade, either Wall or Oladipo or Wood has been out. So I just want to see what that team looks like with all of their guys. Um, you know, they, They've been pretty decent so far despite all of those absences. So I want to see that. I want to see what the Mavs look like with all of their guys back. I want to see what the Heat look like if and when they ever get all of their guys back. Um, and I want to see if this sort of mini slide that the Suns are on turns into anything or if they get it straightened out. I think they've lost three in a row now and Booker missed um, the last game. I think he might have missed the last two games. Um, and and last night they lost without Booker and Aiton only took seven shots, which is just like that seems like an issue to me. And they've had campaign out for, I think, the last two games. And Dario Sharp has been out. So it's like, 
<clears throat> excuse me. There are reasons that they've lost these few games in a row, but I want to see if they get things straightened out because I early in the season I thought that they were taking, you know, more of a jump out of the 7 to 10 range and into the, you know, 4 to 7 range or 5 to 7 range. Um and they sort of backslid a little bit over the last couple of weeks and then I kind of want to see um if the, if the Spurs young guys can keep sort of driving the success like they have through much of this season, or if they wind up getting dragged down by LaMarcus Aldridge, who's just been killing every lineup that he's in. Um, trying to think if there's anything else that I want to see. And I want to see the Grizzlies when they get healthy. Yeah, I'm very excited about the Grizzlies when they get healthy. And I watched Rockets-Wizards, which might have been a mistake because that made me less enthusiastic to watch both of those teams. That game was mostly gross. Um, yeah, I watched it, that too. But like it, nobody played. Nobody <laughs> played. So that's it's not a big deal. Spurs, when they get Derek White back... That that they will move move up because it's basically like where do they fit within this West hierarchy? I'm going to be and the Grizzlies for basically the same reasons of of how do they go? And I've had a lot of trouble figuring out the Pelicans. Mm. I will probably continue to have a lot of trouble figuring out the Pelicans, but those teams, especially in this stretch from like game 20 to game 40, those are the teams I end up watching the most because I get so interested and because generally those teams are not the run away and hide. So like, for example, even if it weren't for the COVID absences and stuff the Clippers are doing with, I'm not particularly interested in how the Clippers are are right now. Like, mm. this isn't as relevant as how they look in, God, I have to calibrate all my stuff, but like, I guess April? Like, it's it's, it's going to be, everything is weird. I don't think it. the regular season ends until May, even. Yeah, so like, um, yeah, it, but April is probably when I'll really start calibrating on them. You know, after, after the trade deadline, we'll see when the buyout deadline is and all that type of stuff. So actually, now that I think about it, two more things that I'm interested in. So one of the two things that I'm really interested in is how many of the teams that have been having, you know, players who were essentially non-rotation guys or friend rotation guys at the beginning of the season that have stepped up in the wake of COVID absences or injury absences, how many of those teams are going to keep those guys in the rotation because they they like what they saw and are just like, you know what? This guy's good. He's just going to play for us. You know, like when everybody gets healthy for the Rockets, is Jay Sean Tate still going to play 25 minutes a game? You know, when um, when everybody gets healthy for the Clippers, you know, Terrence Mann, the last couple of games has been pretty good. Like, does he get 10 minutes a game, 12 minutes a game off the bench instead of not playing at all? Things like that. I think some like that could be a th- something where, you know, you thought you had a rotation weakness and all of a sudden it seems like somebody can play pretty well. And like during the regular season, at least, if you find a new ninth man who's good for 14 minutes a night and you're not using you know, you're not overworking your stars in a season like this, or you're not, you know, um, you know, using somebody who's not a quality NBA player. That's the kind of thing that can mean the difference between, you know, we're the two seed and we're the four seed. Yeah, that's a really good point. Well, we can, we can end it there. I know you and I could talk for, for much longer, but thank you so much for taking time. Pleasure as always. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Always enjoy coming on and uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks again to Jared Dubin for taking the time. You can read his NBA writing all over the place. You can also check out, he does great NFL work for CBS. And if you follow him, J-A-Dubin5, J-A-D-U-B-I-N, then the number five, he has an authory page too, which kind of puts everything together. It's something that, I don't know if it didn't exist when I used to write all over the place, or I it did exist and I didn't do it, both of which are possible. Um, but it's a great resource for Jared and, and people like him that have various outlets right now. I think that can be very useful. 
a lot of fun stuff going on around in the league. And if you want to support the show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe and download every episode that is very useful for this show, whatever podcast player you're using, Spotify, Apple, really wherever. Really do appreciate it. And since this will never come out on a specific day of the week, subscribing is the best way to have it because then you don't have to see a tweet from me or anything like that. Also, leaving a rating, leaving a review in the podcast player of your choosing, that can be a great way for other people to find the podcast and word of mouth, same same line, if it's whether it's social media or something else, be like, hey, think you'd like this episode, think you'd like this show, really do appreciate that as well. Nate and I have taken a lighter week this week, but we'll be back full steam next week. We've uh, for dunked on subscribers, to, uh, dunked on Prime subscribers have both regrading the 2019 offseason podcast. The free one was the West one, so anybody can listen to that one. But we'll be back in full, five episodes next week. NBA cast on League Pass Digital on Monday. Looking like that is going to still be Lakers-Hawks, which is exceedingly exciting. And my written work, of course, is at The Athletic. I have a bunch in the pipeline right now, which is pretty fun. I've worked on a couple of different projects that should be coming out, solo and collaborative, over the next little while. So you can take a look for that. You can also give me feedback, good, bad, or indifferent. Danny LaRue, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is a promise. I will reply if I can, but I take my, prom- my promise is to read it because that matters to me. They go to a separate place in my inbox. And Twitter is too ephemeral, so I, I miss stuff. But if you send it to, the, to my email, I will definitely see it, and that matters. So thank you so much for listening. Take care, and make it a great day. 